This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, Lorraine, I was watching our favorite TV program, Yellow Jackets. Yeah. Little episode yesterday. Had a bit of a traumatic moment when fabulous Juliette Lewis was wearing knickers over a pair of fishnet tights and it got me thinking about the whole knickers over or knickers under tights because I have seen people in the gym put their tights on and then put their knickers on top and I've always been very confused and slightly disturbed by it what's going on they're not Batman are they (laughs) he wears his stuff over his tights yes I think it's very unhygienic unless you put your pants close to your um vulva (laughs) (laughs) don't you well, that's, I don't really, well, I was slightly confused about why anybody would do have it. Have you road tested it? I haven't road tested I don't want to road test that one, thank you. But I did have a quick look online just to see if I can find yeah. any in-depth forums. Did on you have a lot of free time yesterday? Well, five minutes, yeah, five minutes after watching Yellow Jackets. What did that, you Google? very good. It's <laughs> over tights. Why do people wear pants over tights? And anyway, what I found was it's to stop the tights falling down. But I don't think Juliette Lewis in Yellow Jackets was doing it to have the tights falling down. I Not think it was because it, well, she looked really sexy and it was a sexy looking combo. But I, I just don't think in everyday life, pants mm-hmm. over a pair of 10 derniers. What's happening inside your head, Trish, when I you're seeing know. these things? I don't know. I should be worrying about the, yeah, the bigger plot about cannibalism yeah. and, and all sorts of things. But that, no, that's, the, that's the theme of the show to worry about. <laughs> tights and pants, all in the detail. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Stop the press, hold the front page. Trish has broken the internet once again. How has she done this, you may ask, at the beginning of this new episode? Well, she's done it with carrots, of course. Mm -hmm. We have been bombarded by request for her carrot porridge recipe. So I have had a mad week of fending off the breakfast bandits, as I'm Mm. calling them on my social media. They are desperate Mm. to know the ingredients. Now, we all know how I feel about carrots, don't we, Trish? How do I feel about carrots? Yeah, well, you just, you don't like them, do you? Vegetables in general, big no from you. But uh, I do know better than to talk to you about recipes, so I can see how you're being asked by your millions of internet followers or Instagram followers might upset you, especially involved Involving the devil's vegetables, as you call them, uh, might tip you over the edge. <laughs> well, it has tipped me over the edge because I don't mind you going a bit Nigella on me mm. and talking to me about recipes or actual Nigella going Nigella on me as she once did. She gave me a hug once. Name That's drop, my name first drop. name drop of name the show. Drop, name drop. Yeah. Anyway, but I do mind everyone else asking me for carrot tips. So mm. I have started the RVRL. 
we're on manoeuvres. Oh, God. Well, RVRL, what's that old nonsense? That is the Root Vegetable Resistance League, <laughs> my culinary friend. There are no carrots in porridge on my oh. watch, and my people will make sure of that. Margot is with us, just FYI. Oh, right. Yes, Margot, yes, yes, she doesn't really like root So, for the love of God, dear listeners, stop asking me, can you... Trish, once mm. again, tell them where you got this breakfast. Oh, yes. Okay. So it's, yes, it's having a lot of love on the Facebook it group is. where I posted the recipe. So if you're um, a member but of the Facebook group. not everyone can work Facebook, as we found out. No, this is true. Uh, and otherwise, just search it up. Search it up on Riverford yes. Organic, because I got Riverford. it on a little leaflet uh, with my veggie box when they delivered some extra carrots and said, here's right. what to do with your extra carrots. And it's just, it's, it's changing the world. One, one carrot at a time, yeah. I think, isn't it? So now that's done, you've calmed down a bit, I think we should start the show, which today is a really special one because it's devoted to something we know our listeners are fond of, and that is our love of books. And rather spookily, we didn't manage this when we were doing it, but it's actually World Book Day, isn't it, while we're recording as well, in a spooky coincidence, all tying together. As if we were professional podcasters. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, welcome to Postcards from Midlife, the book club edition. We have got today an exclusive discussion on the Women's Prize for Fiction long list, which was announced last week. I have got insider knowledge on this because I'm one of the five judges. And what a brilliant list it is. Yes. So we'll be looking into the trends in fiction that have made it onto the list and helping our lovely listeners curate books which will expand their reading this year or maybe get your reading mojo back. Because if you lost it like I did last year, but it's back on with a vengeance. We've also got the author Tanya Shadrick coming on to discuss her brilliant memoir, The Cure for Sleep, A Late Waking Life, which is gathering really rather rave reviews. Yes, it is. One critic wrote this about her brilliant book. It is such a bold, brave, beautiful story about birth, death, rebirth and building a larger life, which is something we all want to do, isn't it? So I'm looking forward to discussing all that with Tanya and also talking to her about her own midlife journey, which is part of starting a larger life, isn't it? Should mm. we get on with it, my little bibliophile? Yes, I think we should before I start googling more porridge recipes to share with everybody, with our listeners. Maybe there might be a beetroot one because that could say you completely mad last year we had the author kate moss obe on the show and she told us that she had helped set up the women's prize for fiction 27 years ago because in 1991 the booker prize list had no women on it which apparently had gone unnoticed by the judges now this was during a time when the ratio of books published was 60 40 in favor of women Mm -hmm. so it's quite shocking to think that that could happen in the 90s which was modern times and that's why this prize was set up to promote female writers as a result so the idea of the prize is to shine a light on the outstanding and ambitious fiction by women of diverse backgrounds from all over the world and I have to say the long list and the authors on it do just that. Yeah, I mean, it's a great book list. I always look forward to it every single year. I have to say the Women's Prize is one I always look out for. And how fabulous that you are one of the five judges because you are uh, an author now, aren't you? Because you have your your lovely book, which I think has just come out in paperback. It has. Uh, Yay. But there was, um, there's a lot of books, I believe, 175. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow, how does that work? I'm doing the maths. I'm doing the maths. Can't work out how you're going to get 375 books. Well, it is a complicated process. Um, and we read around 70 each. And then on the long list, we all read each of the books. And then it goes mm-hmm. down to a short list. And then it goes down to, obviously, um, the winner. So it's pretty thorough. Um, but this year, the, camp- the Women's Prize is also starting a campaign to highlight the need for men to read books mm-hmm. written by women. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about this, but... Um, the campaign's called the authority gap and it seems that from all the research men just don't take women mm. writers as seriously as they take male writers which is something I just hadn't mm. hadn't thought but it obviously affects business and sales it's maddening isn't it so we know that for the top 10 best-selling female fiction authors only 1919 percent of their readers are men and 81 percent are therefore women but the top 10 best-selling male authors the split is much more even so 55 percent men and 45 percent women um so in other words women are prepared to read novels by men but men are a bit reluctant to read novels by women i mean how annoying let's try and change that with this list so um can we have a chat about it then? Can you tell us yes. about some of the books? I can. 16 books. Last year, the winner of the prize was uh, Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, which was kind of a dystopian book mm-hmm. about the future, which I'm saving to read because I've had so many other yeah. books to read. But I think one of the things I noticed um, on the list, there is a new genre called cli-fi which is climate change fiction. Oh, yes, right. So there's a lot based around how Mm -hmm. the world is changing, envisaging how it could be in the future. The other thing I noticed is that women are so funny. These Mm. books are even the more serious ones are so funny, so Mm -hmm. smart. The humour is whip smart. It's really sharp. Um, There's a lot of history. There's a lot of looking back, Trish. You will. Mm -hmm. I I know you like that. Historical, yeah. There's a lot of lesbian relationships um, Mm -hmm. in the books, really well reflected. It's really... I've sort of waded my way through really intelligent, fierce, sharp writing. Now, I thought what I would do rather than read the list of the 16 hours, yes. we will put the list on the Facebook group for Indeed. everybody to see. So you've got it there and it is a brilliant list and you can start working your way through it. I think I will talk about the ones that I think our listeners would particularly mm-hmm. like. Now, I haven't yet read, but it is on the list, Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. But I, I have read that book. I love that. that book. It did make it because people have been gobsmacked by it, haven't they? Mm, it's kind mm-hmm. of, and it's a debut novel as well, which yes, is extraordinary. Yeah. Paper Palace, Miranda Cowley Heller, which was a number one bestseller on the New York Times, a kind of epic story of love, marriage, family, and everything mm-hmm. searing and immersive, the judges called that. Um, I think that would be really good for our listeners. Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. I don't think I've read a book quite so epic. It's about a female pilot during the Second World War. And it sounds as if it could be quite dry. I quite like that. I think you have to get Neil to read that, okay? Because he doesn't read female authors and he's obsessed with flying and Second World War. So that's one thing. He'd absolutely love it because there's a lot of technical detail in there as well. And there is a book called The Bread the Devil Need, K-E-N-E-A-D, by Lisa Allen Agostini, which is an independent publisher. It's a very small Mm. book. It's written in Creole. Okay. So it it felt as if it might be quite difficult to read at at the start. And it's a story of domestic abuse. So all those things would point to it being a difficult book. It was one of the most uplifting 
smart, funny books mm-hmm. I've ever read. So I yeah. think really, I mean, again, these the thing I've learned from judging the list and, and reading these books, and I've obviously got a lot more left to read, is that you pick up books in a bookshop based on what you've always picked yeah. up in a bookshop. Yeah, it's your and reading actually, bubble, yes. isn't it? Yeah. reading bubble. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't have picked that book up um, mm-hmm. in a bookshop. And it was so, so brilliant. And I think it would have been, a sh- I would have missed out by having yeah. not read yeah. it. Yeah. Now, Louise Erdrich's book, The Sentence, is on the list as well, on the long list. I mean, I'd sort of heard of her, but I don't know why I hadn't read her before. Mm. She won the Pulitzer. But this book, I mean, it was enormous. And I, my heart slightly sank because I'd read two books very swiftly. And I thought, oh, no, I've got this this one to do. It's going to be, I'll put it off. Put it off. Yes. I, I, honestly, I couldn't put it down. I oh, was carrying good. it around with me yeah. to the shops to read in queues. Yeah. <laughs> I was oh, so wow. addicted to it. This book, mm-hmm. um, The Sentence, is about a Native American woman who rebuilds her life after prison. But it's also a ghost story. Mm-hmm. So, again, okay. I have absolutely low threshold mm-hmm. on a ghost story because I don't mm-hmm. think in ghosts. I would say it's magical and there is another book that was magical which I would really urge everybody to read but again I don't think you or I would ever pick this book up um, Mm -hmm. in a bookshop it's called Creatures of Passage by Morawa Yejidi Y-E-J-I-D-E and it's about a woman who is a twin and her brother is murdered and she drives Mm. a taxi that comes to life (laughs) with a ghost bear with me with a ghost in it and it's set in Washington in a kind of weird dystopian future yeah. And I read the first page and I thought, oh, this is really going to challenge me. And then again, it was just, I read it till about three o'clock in the morning one night. I was so obsessed with the writing because it was so beautiful. And I think that's the brilliant thing about this list. It's so, the breadth of writing Mm. it's really really different and there's so many different things in there I mean I don't know how we're going to come to a conclusion I think it's going to take us absolutely days so when are we going to find out the winner there is a short list from the 16 Mm -hmm. down to 6 on April the 27th and then in June we announce the winner but it gives you time to yeah when we put this list on the Facebook you could you could go off and start buying some of these I think the island of missing trees by Ellis Shafak which was in the Reese Witherspoon Mm. book club that's a book I think you would I I like her a lot Turkish writer she's really brilliant isn't she yeah yeah yeah. really good I mean it's been such a magical time I don't quite know what I'm going to do when I don't have to get up early (laughs) to read books or people don't send me to the shops and I say oh yeah I'll just nip out and then I go and sit on the bench around the corner for 10 pages do 10 pages once you plan reading a book into your day like you plan doing a bit of exercise or something and it really broadens your mind and makes you think about things in a different way I found that when my mojo came back I was like, mm. instead of just kind of lying down yes. <laughs> at the end of a working day, I would pick up a book for, you know, 10 minutes before I made dinner or whatever. And it, it's so, quite you know, meditative. You kind of really get into it. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? Should I just yeah. tell you a couple of books? Go on. I, okay, I've got three very different ones. I've got one by a man. I know we're talking about women, but I've got one by a man, one that's an educational memoir and one that's written by a contemporary of ours from the magazine world. So the first one is the contemporary is Katie Regan um, and she's written a book called How to Find Your Way Home. And she used to be a sort of features editor, commissioning editor at Company, Cosmo and Marie Claire, of course, all our old stomping grounds. I was wondering whether readers might remember if you bought Marie Claire, she wrote a really popular column called And Then There Were Three. And it was about her choosing to have 
have a baby with a male friend. They were co-parenting, essentially, as friends, this child. And this column charted their often hilarious and and quite complicated sometimes co-parenting journey. And that then led to her first novel. And this is her fourth novel. And it's also about a brother and a sister. You mentioned one about a brother and a sister who are kind of very close growing up and then are forced apart. It's about how they find their way back to each other and rebuild their relationship. So I always like to kind of read and support women that we know who good books and that's really good who do you want next man or educational memoir what's the educational memoir okay. <laughs> this might not appeal to you but it appealed to me because of me or your background anything <laughs> well actually it will because you're very international with your women's education prizes right so this one has been described as an education for the mind and the heart and it's a collection of personal essays by a medieval historian it's fierce appetites by elizabeth boyle and she was born in dublin grew up in suffolk went to university in scotland and then she now lives and teaches kind of medieval celtic history of all things but she's a gen x midlifer so tells these personal stories about her life growing up that are peppered through with what you and i would call nostalgia noodles lots of noodling in there um so you really relate to it and then you relate to the themes because they're all really interesting they're about you know families grief um, losing her father race identity her brother being committed to a psychiatric hospital getting pregnant after a one-night stand failed motherhood so there's everything that you're kind of interested in and then she relates them back to stories from medieval history which is really interesting really different so I'm enjoying that and I obviously now feel very brainy because I have read some of this book you are very brainy and then my final one crossroads by jonathan francis uh yes i've read that i mean i really like him he's one of he's the great american novelist isn't he of of our age you know he wrote the corrections all those brilliant books but the reason i brought this one up was because it caused a bit of consternation in our book group whereby some people really just hated it and i absolutely loved it and Mm. i just thought it was really interesting how you could just be friends women similar interests everything you just, just don't get on at all and this is the first of a trilogy of books that he's writing. So I'm desperately excited that there's going to be another two. And it's about this kind of Midwestern family in the early 1970s. The father is a pastor in this, the first reformed church. His wife, Mariam, has become middle-aged and invisible, of course, but she's harboring this Silly shocking Mary. secret about her past. And their three children each have their own kind of triumphs and traumas going on as well. It's about how they all intersect and the lies they tell. But it's got sex, abortion, nervous breakdowns, Vietnam War, religion, smoking pot, affairs. Everything that you like on a Sunday afternoon. That would have been one I would have taken to the shop in the queue. Yeah. I couldn't put it down. I loved it. Obviously, we had to let go of a lot of books to get Mm. down to this 16 shortlist. And I will be putting them up on the Facebook books because some it was just hard. They're like, you are so attached some of those that I argued really strongly for. I suppose your judging was like a bit of a book book group. It was. It is a kind of book group. It's a really mixed group of women of all ages and backgrounds as well on on the judging panels. So I think, Trish, we have created what I will call a mega book club. Oh, yes. There. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll keep it going. If you fancy starting any of these books, they'll all be listed on the website, on our Facebook group. And... I think we should also start recommending that our men read them Mm, as well mm -hmm. um, and that they start buying books. I'm going to challenge my husband to buy at least one book written by a woman when he next goes out to get a book. And thank you very much for all of that. I think that's an amazing isn't it? Next up, we're going to be talking to someone who's actually written a book, a memoir, in fact. So that's very exciting. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This week's guest is the writer Tanya Shadrick, whose beautiful and searingly honest memoir, The Cure for Sleep, A Late Waking Life, was published at the beginning of the year to critical acclaim. Charting her journey from a difficult childhood in which she endured a complex and often fraught relationship with her mother through to the near-death experience she encountered when she herself became a mother, Tanya details the profound awakening that saw her questioning how she could achieve freedom and self-fulfillment as a woman at the same time as being a mother. A former university administrator and hospice scribe, Tanya, now 48, recounts how she finally managed to carve out the space and the time to embark on an artistic life. And she's here today to share her advice on making changes and to talk about embracing a life of simplicity and slow living in Lewis, the East Sussex town where she lives alongside her husband, Nye, and her teenage children. We'll also be asking her about motherhood, the power of art and creativity, and why no matter how late in life, she believes it's always possible to wake up and step out of the confines we have made for ourselves. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Tanya. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been so fascinating and enjoyable reading your memoir, but I think we should start because it's so powerful. We should start with the day that changed everything for you after the birth of your son in which you nearly died and afterwards had this kind of realization that you felt you'd been sleepwalking through your life. Tell us what happened. So I was 33 years old. I had just delivered my first child 10 days earlier, you know, normal emergency cesarean and sent home within two days. The book kind of begins with my husband and I congratulating ourselves on our strange little almost fairy tale life. We're very orderly, very disciplined. Like people in a fairy tale kind of congratulating ourselves on how quickly life has gone back to a new normal the midwife has just left after pronouncing me you know what neat men do you have and then I reach for a book from the shelf and suddenly blood begins everywhere all over the floor so I, I knew instantly I didn't have very long to live just mm. enough to reach the telephone and call for an ambulance and I learned later I probably would have died in in less than seven minutes because it was an arterial hemorrhage mm. so it's incredibly rare about one percent of women will suffer postpartum hemorrhage but one percent of those would have something happen like I did when you're you're apparently well and it was very sudden it was also painless Mm -hmm. and I think that's why it was so life-changing because I had as I say in the book time and mind to really Mm -hmm. think about what was happening you say you knew you were dying What, Mm -hmm. what does that feel like I describe it as being like a little boat traveling through space and time I could feel myself going away I say at the beginning of the book that it's not really my concern or interest whether that's the realm of religion or physics or yeah. they think now it's just biochemistry it's just something mm-hmm. that happens yeah. to the brain it doesn't really matter to me it felt as real as anything that's ever happened to me in my life it was like yeah one of the most interesting and strange things that's ever happened to me and I had this painful confrontation with regret you know real mm-hmm. visceral mm-hmm. regret of oh my god I always wanted to be a writer. I hid from that. I've hid from everything because of my difficult childhood. I, mm-hmm. I lived this tiny routine bound life scuttling between home and the office. No friends except my husband and work colleagues. I had to change my life after. It wasn't just the regret. It was the joy of it. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, what a strange thing to say. After the regret, it was this sense of a great collective energy that mm-hmm. wanted me to come out and play. And that's what made coming back from the emergency so difficult because mm-hmm. this routine bound life I'd led, I suddenly had had a glimpse of this beautiful energy precisely mm. when I become the mother of a small child so I was you know I was in a pretty deep hole at that <laughs> coming back to life was quite hard <laughs> but at that point as well so being a, a new mum is a very peculiar place to be uh, anyway for all of us actually because mm-hmm. it's such a shock but it does bring you face to face with your own mothering and the mothering you've had because you had quite a traumatic childhood, didn't you? And your your mother wasn't a traditional mother and she had many difficult moments. Tell us what was going through your mind and what you kind of expected mothering to be. Well, you see, this was what made it all the more extraordinary. As the book makes clear, I never wanted to be a mother. Yes. It wasn't the most abusive of childhoods by a long way. And that's sad that that's true. Um, but it was a very frightening and a very lost defined childhood, yeah. mm-hmm. chaotic. My father left, started a new family in the small town I lived in, but had nothing to do with me. So that's an odd thing. My mum developed, you know, increasingly compulsive rituals around cleanliness. It was all very strange. I think the phrase I have in the book is I'd never wanted power over another person because I knew what it was like to have no power or to have people constraining me and shouting at me and frightening me. So I never wanted to be a mother. But at 19, I met this beautiful boy who promised to look after me my whole life. And we were 10 years in and he kept that promise. And all he'd ever wanted to be was a father since the age of five. It's just he didn't tell me that for our first 10 years together. <laughs> and you must have felt very safe at that point. You must have had safety for 10 years. Which he, you was all I, he was all I wanted. We literally had no friends but each other for 10 years. And those 10 years for me passed really quickly. They were really happy. And I did not see it coming the New Year's Day of our 30th year when he had tears in his eyes and said, please, when are we going to start a family? The book is full of threshold moments when you could walk away or give up on someone. But I chose to become a mother. um, So it's kind of extraordinary then that I had to have IVF. And then also that I had this extraordinary thing happen to me after Mm -hmm. becoming a new mother. I didn't want to be a mother. And then being a new mother was, I think, more than normally hard. And as we all know, it's really hard anyway. How do you feel as a mother now? I love being a mother of these two particular people. I have many wonderful women who are mothers, who are my friends that I've met since becoming a mother than myself I still don't share a lot of the feelings they Mm-hmm. describe you know, that physical delight in one's children I touch them and hug them all the time they're told every day they're loved we're not a cold family my kind of hunger for body and skin has always been uh, for men yeah. <laughs> for adults. I, yeah. yeah my desire has always been for adults and equality I, I love equality in relationships mm-hmm. I'm quite a careful mother I would say it's interesting you say about men because obviously the men in the book are very significant because we start with the heartbreak of your father Mm. abandoning you and your mother and leaving you and you know you say this one thing if I if I'd been easier prettier and had more winning ways it's just so heartbreaking to to think that a child can feel that and probably a lot of children do when when parents leave you blamed yourself but you also contemplated leaving your own children didn't you because of how you found yourself conflicted about the life and self-fulfillment that you wanted and then finding yourself as a mother and these years stretching out ahead of you of mothering and the physical 
emotional work that goes into that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I came around from the induced coma and and realized I was back in this life that I'd so briefly almost escaped during the near death, my only wish running through my mind was how do I get away and when? Mm -hmm. And there's a couple chapters in the book where you see me like really like a trapped animal kind of going, should I do it? now and I can leave the hospital bed can I give it um, a year even um, to help my husband through the sleepless nights for myself I did just want to leave I felt no love for my son because of all the emergency that had happened it's not even selfish I think because of everything I just endured physically I think it was quite natural to want to go off somewhere and heal and be, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas the minute I came out of the coma, I was handed the baby to breastfeed Mm -hmm. because of hospitals obsession with breastfeeding these days. For reasons I describe in the book, I decided to stay. And to be clear, I think there are times when women and men need to leave. It's Mm -hmm. better for everyone. There's nothing morally wrong with leaving. There are good Mm -hmm. ways to leave and bad ways to leave. My father Mm -hmm. left in a bad and irresponsible way. The reason I stayed was because I knew how much my life being warped out of shape by my father's absence and there's a lovely line in the Sylvia Plath poem where she says her newly fatherless child you know you'll be aware of an absence presently sky like a pig's backside an utter lack of attention and that's what I suffered from in childhood absolute Mm -hmm. invisibility and I just couldn't do that to somebody else I suppose your awakenings desire you had not to sleepwalk through life Mm -hmm. having been through such a traumatic experience. One of the reasons it attracted Trish and I to talking to you on the show is it felt kind of describing how midlife feels for a lot of women that you suddenly look back and think, hold on a minute, I've been sleepwalking through this last 10 years. I've just done what society expects of me and I've stayed in the family and I've done this whole. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is to talk about that feeling because you're very proactive you are make the change recognize your own needs how would you advise women to start looking at having an awakening like that as they hit this period of life I use the word stepping into a lot in the book the book is full of thresholds like doorways you actually walk through the doorway of a swimming pool into a new community group it can all be done in our heads at some point we need to physically step into different ways of being and connecting out of what I call the private you know there's a repeating idea in the book of I wanted to reach beyond the narrow roles of wife and mother in a small town Mm-hmm. They were things I loved. They were things I was committed to, but they were too private. They were too atomized. And so it was all about finding ways to expand my identity and connect and connect outwards. So beginning in my street, and that can be online, it can start in really small ways. You know, going to my local outdoor swimming pool changes my life in ways I mm-hmm. could never foresee. And do you feel selfish doing that? A lot of women at this stage feel weighed down by what others expect of them or the, the guilt of letting others down. At the risk of sounding like a sociopath, and I'm not because I have high empathy, I am not troubled by ideas of selfishness I do not feel imposter syndrome ever I really do understand how how many women in particular Mm -hmm. and how that is for them I don't have it Mm -hmm. I don't and no (laughs) I'm not worried what other people think either which is quite a liberating isn't it in a way I mean I was always worried about what people think was in my background that working class rural culture everybody knows everybody's business everybody offers their opinions very loudly 
if you are important, we're all important. Yeah. If sometimes mm-hmm. my children take precedence and sometimes my husband, sometimes a friend who's in need, but then also that means surely I must sometimes come first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise yeah. that there's no balance. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense if everyone else's needs are more important than yeah. ours. Some people you talk about, you know, judging you for when you gave up your job and embarked on this kind of artistic project that you didn't know what, what was going to come of it. And other women didn't like that, did they? You You were kind of judged oh sure and it comes from people you kind of consider not your close Mm. friends but people in your day-to-day circle women the same Mm -hmm. age and stage as you and I didn't see that coming you know Mm. but you know I changed my life in quite an unusual way in the end for a shy Mm -hmm. and hidden person by doing some performance art in my my local town writing on a huge scale and and, you know are we scribbling and aren't you lucky that your husband will let you do this on the and it's really fascinating mm-hmm. what is drawn out to people when somebody particularly in a small town I think mm-hmm. the smaller your community the less you have to do to attract curiosity yeah. attention mockery comment also support you know I got mm-hmm. a lot of support but mm-hmm. not from close friends it yeah. came from strangers do you want to tell us about the project because it's so fascinating yeah. the swimming pool project it's quite remarkable mm. it's funny that I've got so many people I'm connected to now because of mm-hmm. what I did by the pool but I only really swam outdoors in cold water at the Lido for a couple of summers and I haven't since so I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a proper swimmer like you Lorraine it kind of came out of constraints and limits and I now teach right. people that most creativity and big life change actually comes out of looking at your limits and finding a way to do something within them so I only had school hours which isn't very much as we all know the year before I'd started swimming in the outdoor pool as part of this expansion of the body and and just letting myself do new things and I'd always written private diaries I'd always wanted to be a writer never sent anything off even to a competition and I suddenly thought well I know I can write my diary so what if I just change the scale? What if I make them like a performance, like a spectacle? And I got permission from the pool because they knew me. And I decided a mile of writing, it's a bit like a mile, an open mile of swimming. You know, my head was kind of, it's the first time I was being really creative. And I decided I would do a mile of writing beside the pool. I sort of knelt down at a little table like a Japanese scribe. The uh, paper would be as long as a swimming pool. So it was originally, I called it laps of longhand. Mm-hmm. So I had this idea that I would write lines. So 150 foot, 50 meter long roll of paper, seven lines on each of the five rolls. So the five swimming lanes. Yeah. And, and I've got tiny, neat handwriting. So it was novel length. It was 100,000 words. It took me two wow. springs and summers. They're kind of demented. They're so neat. There's hardly a crossing out on them. And mm-hmm. I was just composing them in real time, sometimes surrounded by hundreds of children in wet swimming costumes, mm-hmm. shrieking and running <laughs> around me. I've never done anything before or since that was as soulful, exciting, it was just delicious. I didn't think of myself as a creative person for mm-hmm. all I'd wanted to write. And suddenly I had an idea. And then even more importantly, I made it material. I actually said I'd do something and I did it. Mm-hmm. And that's a well, really it's a, powerful it's feeling. A hugely practical yeah. thing to do as well, isn't it? It's a very specific physical thing to sit down yeah. and do all that. And it's kind of your approach to life now is is what they call slow living, you know, slowing 
down. How would you describe that? That's something I feel a lot of us after big manic careers are looking for. For me, what's kind of how I grew up, because I grew up in a really remote rural kind of region, mainly raised by my grandparents or part raised by my grandparents and my husband the same. So we've always been a bit out of time. We've always been, you know, more like people from a different generation. It's lovely now to see more people learning how to grow things and how to tend things and make things by hand but you know I always have so there's a crochet blanket just across from me that I I began making when I couldn't get pregnant first you know my husband's out in the garden today growing and we've got hundreds of little seed trays all over the house Mm -hmm. I sometimes resist the phrase slow living because of course it has a kind of a commercial lifestyle magazine weird wellness thing around it yeah and it's just not that for us it's just who we've always been I think there's many people of my generation didn't get raised by elders you know maybe Mm -hmm. they traveled with their parents jobs most of my friends did move around a lot in their childhood they didn't have any grandparents around Mm -hmm. and part of when I made all my mother friends part of what I brought to the group was the ability to make things mm-hmm. and a certain way of passing time that I shared with them. Back to midlife, really. And this is obviously something we ask yeah. everybody on the show, the physical changes as well. Did yeah. you have any sense about perimenopause, about changes that happened to women from the women that you grew up with and around? Only from my mother. She had me relatively late in life. And during my teenage years, she was, I mean, she had multiple problems uh, mm-hmm. that she was dealing with, mental health issues and and, and a very dark second marriage just the menopause was brutal Um, and just up all night pacing the house because of restless legs you know something really frightened me there's a part in the book where I describe how in my early 40s I come off the pill for a whole range of reasons but also to know what my body was doing so for me before I hit the perimenopause where my desire has changed and it's made me really sad I had this massive uprush of desire which Mm -hmm. I could could not no amount of marital sex could assuage it it was like existential levels of physical Mm -hmm. desire when I came off the pill in my early Mm -hmm. 40s now I'm coming closer to 50 and I'm six months into HRT and my gosh I needed it because I was off the pill I really did notice this physical change in me it was appalling physical desire has always been such an important part of my life despite being in this you know it's a long marriage that Mm -hmm. doesn't change that and I really miss it it's it's still not quite as it was part of who you were wasn't it the physical desire I mean you've written about it I know a lot of women this bit of life between sort of 40 and 55 and particularly those in long-term marriages Mm. lose desire or their desire changes many women we've talked to start relationships with women um, having been married a long time how do you get in touch with your desire in midlife and your libido where's the entry point the doorway the threshold for that okay for me it happened in relation just to myself and the outside day me and my body because my husband and I've always been very compatible physically so for me it was a different thing I had to spend more time on my own in public taking up space dressing in a certain letting the sunlight touch my skin so I've always been quite modest in how I dress so I spent a lot of time sunbathing on the side of the um, Lido in my town just I fell in love with my painted red nails and it and I say in the book that it's not narcissism for me mm-hmm. because to me narcissism is that classic thing of you are interested in yourself to the exclusion of others 
Yeah. For me, when I took pleasure in my skin and my body, I also had more attention for everybody else. Mm. I wasn't trapped in my own head, feeling mm. dull or hung mm. up about my body shape. I was in love with myself and everyone else. <laughs> mm-hmm. So for me, desire was more about a love for life, not mm-hmm. just a narrow definition of sexual desire. So um, another woman who had a big impact on your life and also another swimming connect, and they were sort of independent, weren't they? They just, these two projects to do with swimming yeah. was um, Lynn Roper, who's a, a former paramedic whose diaries you edited and published after her death and they were called Wild Woman Swimming. Tell us about that project and also this this becoming a hospice scribe. I mean that was (laughs) fascinating. Well that was the first thing I did. So Mm. when my daughter was still I don't know two three I only had like a couple hours a week to myself. I thought what can I do to start changing my life? Mm Um, And I thought, you know, I think I can probably be trusted because of my senior job at this university and my local hospice let me work with people at the end of their life. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't very many over the four years I did it, but it was kind of exciting. I would get called up. Mm -hmm. I would receive a message that somebody wanted me to meet them in the hospice or at their home. Sometimes I'd meet them several times, sometimes just once. And it was because they'd been seized with that kind of agitation and regret that I had experienced during Mm -hmm. near death. So that's the first way I changed my life. Mm -hmm. And then I'm this woman at the pool doing the writing and I do my first little blog post. I've got like 10 followers on Twitter. I get a message from a woman who had grown up, who was from Devon, where I grew up, saying, (laughs) you know, I've just read your blog post about being in the sea in Devon as a child. and, And that was like my childhood. But like. I've always wanted to be a writer, but I have left it too late. I'm dying now of cancer and I've got my online swim diaries, but I've never edited them. And this is like a massive thing to ask, but because you've been a hospice scribe, because you come from Devon, Mm -hmm. because you're by a swimming pool this summer, like, will you talk to me about living wild in the face of death? Will you look at my diaries and try and do something with them? Mm-hmm. And I think she only wanted me to include them in a little kind of uh, anthology of writing about water that I was doing that summer. Yes. And I think that was my intention too. But I met her just once a month before she died in her hospice. And it was just one of those, again, a threshold moment. I literally walked into the door mm-hmm. of her hospice room. She just had a brain operation. So she was swollen by the medicine. She had like staples down her head and and we just yeah it's like when you you fall in love at first sight or you find the person you're going to spend the next 30 years with we only met once but I I came away from that meeting and I started to look at these diaries she'd written really quick and I remember looking at my husband in the car and thinking well this is what life is this is Mm -hmm. what brings us to the best things in our life when we let our life's direction be changed by chance yeah or by good people So you were talking to people, I like the word agitated at the end of their time Mm. and trying to do honour to what they wanted, you know, to leave behind, some kind of written legacy. What did you learn? I'm not medical. I'm not Mm -hmm. a counsellor. I I didn't work with thousands of people. This isn't research based. This is just, I'm an experienced person. I'm a sort of person who's interested in how to live and how to die. Uh, What I learned from those people was that something was disturbing their peace. Sometimes it was quite mild, like a little bit of their conscience was troubled, not by any great transgression, just it's a shame that I'm still not feeling okay about that. What I learned was we just need to get better as a society at listening to difficult things that can't be fixed. Mm -hmm. And this is particularly hard when it's our parents, because Mm -hmm. I also learned that so many of the people I met had family in the next room. And a repeated phrase that I heard from a lot of my clients 
mentors they're all out there wanting me to say something about you know them as children we want our loved ones at the end of their lives to tell us about us and they're often wanting to go to a quite different place in their memory you know it was extraordinary that people might be revisiting something before they'd had their families that doesn't mean the families weren't loved you know what I was doing was so simple I was I think the real power in what I did was simply I was prepared to go and meet strangers, listen to them and not Mm. try and make them feel better Mm. and not to try and get anything for myself out of that. And I think that's something we can all offer more people in our communities. Mm. You know, when we have our elderly neighbours who want to just talk about their dead husband. Let's get better at listening to that because it really helps them. (laughs) Is there one thing that stood out for you, Some anyone that kind of pops up in your mind all the time? Yes. Um, And in the book, I describe it. And and I did ask permission right at the very beginning. It was my first ever hospice client. And he was a lovely man. And he had a loving wife. um, And they were surrounded by all the kind of photos of their rich, long married life, working class man. He was very worried about, you know, the end of his life. Um, But we were kind of just making a list of things he'd owned and bought, you know, his wife was prompting him. I asked a really actually quite stupid question about what, what did you do with your pay packet once the bills were paid? And I thought, what? idiotic well Mm -hmm. because it was my first hospice client so I was a bit out of my depth but it unlocked he it was just like hearing someone sing he just began to talk about the first ever foreign holiday they'd ever been able to afford um in the 60s and they went to camp by an Italian lake and a big Mm -hmm. storm came up and all the men on the campsite were out in the dark together all these men of different languages hammering all the tents down Mm -hmm. and securing everything on the campsite and he just talked and he was like lyrical, you know, and everybody has some poetry in them. That was my other big learning. And, and that was joyous. And it must have been interesting to see their, their relationships, such a long relationship right right mm-hmm. to the end. And of course, talking of long relationships, you've, you've been with your husband since you were 19. So the idea of sustaining a long term relationship when you're so young when you get together and you're both going to grow and evolve Mm -hmm. and change. I mean, I met my husband when I was 19 as well, but it's about Mm -hmm. sustaining that relationship. And, you know, it hasn't been without its ups and downs, has it? Because you did become romantically involved with Mm. with somebody else. And that was a a very big part of the story, isn't it? And that was something you had to talk to your husband about and work out and resolve for yourself. How old was I? I think I was 42. And a work meeting had brought me to the door of a stranger I knew nothing Mm -hmm. about them they had no online life um, and I'd gone to them for a very particular piece of help with a performance project I I hope to do after my mile of writing another threshold the door opened the person was on the phone I remember stepping across the doorway and feeling like life had just like tilted nothing more than that but then within a couple of months I knew I'd fallen in love and then within another couple months I realized this person loved me too Mm-hmm. Um, but I was about to go away on a once in a lifetime residency for a month in a foreign country, which the mile of writing had earned me. So my life was changing really fast. Mm-hmm. I'd gone from being a really obscure wife and mother to someone who was being interviewed. I had, you know, a centerfold thing in a magazine. That sounds a bit more racy than it was, you know, <laughs> trendy kind yeah. of like 30, yeah. 20 something magazine had done a five page photo feature on mm-hmm. me. I was on regional TV, national radio. And suddenly I'm going off to Switzerland and, and I've fallen in love. And our marriage was under strain because we weren't coping with me changing. Mm-hmm. My husband's very generous. He wanted me to change. He was supporting me materially to do that. But emotionally, 
he was entering a sleepwalking phase of going, well, Mm. I'm a breadwinner and I'm holding up this family and there is nothing for me beyond work and home till retirement. So he was hibernating precisely at the point where my engines were running so rich, you know, hormones, ambition, appetite. And then I find this other person who feels as necessary to me as my husband had when I met him. No, I'm not going to say I should have turned away from it because, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not a promiscuous person. That's the only, I've only loved two men my whole life. I've just mm-hmm. had the misfortune to find two people I wanted to share my whole life with. Mm-hmm. And that was an incredibly difficult time in my life. And I paid for it in lost friendships, um, social ostracism. My marriage actually survived it and went on to grow and strengthen afterwards. Mm-hmm. But I don't have that other love in my life. That's a source of sadness. You know, there mm-hmm. is a person I would still like to be sharing my life with. But yeah, I had this ill-conceived, well, no, I had this idea that like uh, Leonard Wolfe, who, mm-hmm. Virginia Wolfe's husband, who, who lived nearby, and he shared his life after Virginia's death with a married woman, quite happily mm-hmm. and peacefully till the end of his life. So I had this idea that I could have a shared life not a menage a trois, that I'd be able to divide my time between the two men. And mm-hmm. incredibly, my husband was prepared to consider that because of who I was and the books we've grown up reading. You know, yeah. we've read Virginia yeah. Woolf, Bernice Nin, we've read Iris Murdoch, both of us. And the other love wanted that too. It was beyond us. If there's a way mm-hmm. of doing it, there's not mm-hmm. enough being written about it. We couldn't find enough guidebooks. It, we was it jealousy? It to- not with my husband. My husband wasn't jealous at all. He was worried for me and my well-being, rightly, because I did suffer yeah. terribly from attempting this. Not jealousy. It was the, the social criticism. It, I mean, we were, it was a very private arrangement, but quite quickly, I had a devastating letter put through my door. An older woman who had been one of my closest friends who helped me raise children dropped a letter through the door, like ending our friendship forever, uh, calling me sordid. Um, mm. And she didn't ask for the details, um, but she had heard that I cared for someone else because I didn't get caught in an affair. I told my husband I'm in a real Mm. situation because I love you and I love someone else and I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do and I think I'm probably going to end up with nothing or without either of you but I have to admit this need yeah and then the other love soon after received a letter from someone likewise close to him that was I think also Mm. devastating and we just couldn't it it was we were just too new and we just couldn't recover from it so it was really sad and in the book I don't minimize that or dodge that it's not this the book is not some triumphant story of a woman um seamlessly and easily rising up from the moment she has her no. awakening well I that's why I feel able to write the book because I make some big mistakes I'm also proud that I tried to do this unusual thing mm-hmm. I tried to step outside of it I tried I tried to remake my domestic arrangements just like I'd remade myself to be a mother just like mm-hmm. I'd remade myself to be part of a community of women who were mothering you know I've tried at each stage since near death to remake arrangements for living mm-hmm. and loving and in some respects I've really succeeded beyond my mm-hmm. wildest dreams but in that instance trying to remake the way men and women live together I didn't get what I wanted <laughs> so I failed. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't. It, there's lots of ends, isn't there? You've left an end not tied up. That's yeah. it failed yeah. then. And how is the relationship with your husband? How it must have changed um, and, and evolved 
since that time as well. I think the reason we're still together now, as I say, he was able to contemplate this difficulty and sadness I brought to him because of the type of people we are intellectually, because mm-hmm. of the books we've read, the things we believe in. The reason we endured for these five years since the attempt at, at this shared life, as I call it, is because we made a decision when he flew out to me on the residency. Mm-hmm. I said, I'll answer anything. Ask me and I'll, I'll answer. But he chose not to ask. Okay. He said, right. I'm not going to ask what's happened it's over the last six said. months. I'm yeah. not going to go into where and when and mm-hmm. what, because you'll either tell the truth or you'll lie. And just the amount of talk will feel cathartic, mm-hmm. but it won't be. It'll mm-hmm. be details we can't recover yeah. from. And I think that was a really wise decision. Mm-hmm. I think that's why we're still together. Mm-hmm. The publicness of it now, though, you obviously obviously had to discuss putting all of this into the book and being here talking about yeah. it as well. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like your communication has, is really strong as a couple. Yeah. We've got this phrase, the romance and maintenance. It's borrowed mm-hmm. from an American writer about buildings. And we've had that in our life since we were in our 20s, this concept of the romance and maintenance, which is real romance, real love. It's about what you tend and it's about how things change shape over time rather than trying to maintain this perfect romantic idea of a fixed thing Mm -hmm. we see ourselves as kind of like a big old garden or a crumbling mansion that's kind of you're shoring it up and you know it's the Mm -hmm. opposite of a perfection approach to life it's like how do you improvise fixes my husband's also got this lovely concept of ebb and flow like we don't do valentine's day we don't always Mm -hmm. even buy christmas or birthday presents we buy them for the children make a big deal for the children but for ourselves we rarely do it because Mm -hmm. we've been together 30 years but every now and then we see something perfect for each other and we just get it. So you talked about how important books are in your life and history of literature and and how they've influenced you. We did ask you before you came on to give us, I think, two or three books that you think would be good for our listeners to dip into. Which ones have informed you most, do you think? These are going to sound highbrow, but I don't apologise for that because actually mm-hmm. they're not. Um, they are literary, but they're such great guides to living. So in my 20s, when I was a Shilette administrator, I lived through the diaries of Anise Nin, the, the 1920s. Yeah. You know, well, she was writing all through her life, but her diaries, they fill up a whole bookshelf in a library. She, she wrote compulsively from the age of 11 when her father left her. And she was a young married wife like I was and like you were, Trish, but then began an affair with Henry Miller in her late 20s and then went wild. (laughs) Her (laughs) diaries are shocking, but they're also generous. So she was deceitful, but she was also generous and supportive of others and just explored the further reaches of of womanhood and desire. Mm -hmm. I mean, anything that's being written today is tame in comparison to her diaries. And so few people have read them and I just think that I, I would say to I think Lisa women. is the only one who's come near it recently in mm-hmm. her yeah, in and her I, novel, and, actually more than her. Yeah, animal, animal, animal. is, is mm. really yeah. yeah that, you're you're right. That's the closest, and you've interviewed her, haven't you? Yeah, yes. yeah, we yeah. had her on the show. Yeah, I mean, she writes about uncomfortable women as well, and thinking uncomfortable things. Yeah. Right. So we're all going to be reading the diaries of Anise Nin <laughs> next up on your list. The collected or all the poetry of Adrian Rich, the American writer, because like Nin, but differently, she was being published from her early 20s right through to the end of her life and it's interesting when you said earlier about women that you interview are moving into female relationships 
same sex relationships when they reach midlife. So she was the mother of three children by the end of her 20s. I think by her 40s, she was in female relationships for the rest of her life. And her poetry charts that change and her writing about being a woman in her 40s. I mean, she's good throughout her life. But from the 1970s poems onwards, I'd say start with Adrian Rich's poetry written in the 1970s and on into the 80s. They are just... My mile of writing was in part powered by just a couple lines in Adrian Rich, where she talks about freedom being routine, prose bound, remembering, mm-hmm. like, you know, inch by inch, you know, like yeah. changing your life inch by inch. And she mm-hmm. talks about, you know, being a woman at 49 and the light being critical of her. And, oh, it's so physical, but she's engaging <laughs> with politics and sex. And, and yeah. she's not as known in England as I, I feel she should be. So mm-hmm. big fan of Adrian Rich. And of course, Cheryl Strayed is in Wild, both yeah. in the film and obviously the memoir the film is based on. That's one of the key books she carries with her when she's grieving yeah. for her mother, because her mother and she were both studying at college. You know, she takes a book, of, I think it's Dream of a Common Language. She takes it with her on her, her hike. Now, so for any women who are sort of harboring this feeling of they haven't realized their full creative potential in midlife how do you even start I read about an exercise that you did to make a list do you want to explain that and how that helped yeah, you I do think of myself as a creative person I have mm-hmm. this confidence that I can make projects literally out of nothing you know mm-hmm. out of some tins or matchboxes but when I wanted to change my life, once the children were both in school, I didn't even have any likes. I didn't even have hobbies. I, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't depressed, but it was just like an absence of anything personal to me that I felt strongly about because it had all been crowded out by work mm-hmm. and mothering. And we all know how this feels. I kind of came up with this idea. Ray Bradbury, the science fiction writer, talks about making lists. If you want to always have something to write about lists from your childhood, lists of what you love, lists of what you hate, lists of what you feared like the clown the great aunt and I thought what if I make a list of a hundred things I love I remember it took me all one day I was sitting on the back step the children were in school and I couldn't think of anything to say (laughs) so it was like Mm. I like peeling an apple I like the cats (laughs) in the sun I mean it was painful Mm -hmm. to try and put words on paper but just two years later I'm writing a mile in public on giant rolls of paper Mm. so I am proof that you can live your entire first 40 years without joining a club a society without going clubbing without nothing I was so hidden and yet from that exercise on my back doorstep like what do I love Mm -hmm. what did I ever love and what was magical and it's magical because I do it with people all the time now what's magical and moving and exciting is that most people's lists start off pretty conventional Mm -hmm. and then you get to about number 60 and you speed up a bit and you're like (laughs) I love the feel of my body in the arms of I love Mm -hmm. and and then by the end it gets into really big soul stuff like I stand for this in the world and then you start getting personal desire mixed in with your your morals and your ethics and your ambitions Mm -hmm. and of course that's the beginning of a creative life that's the beginning of a life that's more meaningful for you and also has more use to others beyond the home and family it's been so lovely Lovely speaking to you, Tanya. I think everything you've said is will really resonate with women of all ages, actually. So thank thank you. The messages I'm getting from people are incredible. I mean, every day. And this this is why I've risked these tender stories from my life about Mm -hmm. my marriage and why my husband has supported me in that, because I hoped 
beyond critical and commercial reception, I was going, I, I do measure the book by how many people it's bringing into my life. And, and women are writing to me saying, you know, I love my husband, but I haven't been coerced. Mm-hmm. I decided I was too much. I myself chose to, to let it all go. I'm getting them every day. Oh, that's um, so good. So that's, that's what so I stand good. for in the world. There's a tingly <laughs> feeling around your book. I think it's yes. going to be quite a game changer. Yeah. Thank you so much. Here we are. Nostalgia Noodle, best bit of the show, serious mm. journalism. Here we come. So I've been talking books. Yeah. Books, books, books. Talking books, writing books, thinking books. And uh, this week, my eldest was back from university to go for a job interview, um, the various things part of her course. And she brought her sewing kit because mm-hmm. she is very crafty. I don't know who these children are related to. And in her sewing kit mm-hmm. was my bookmark from when oh. I was very very small so I think probably well I am still very small physically I would have been about eight because oh, um, yeah. it's my old sewing kit that I brought from home ah. which she uses uh, just trying to make it all make sense to the listener and it's a very tiny one with mm-hmm. a massive fluffy yellow head and googly eyes oh. googly eye as it <laughs> one because one's fallen off how can a thing last oh. that long? I mean, it ties into the theme of books, but back in the day, we all used bookmarks, didn't yes. we? Now I just fold over the Oh, do you? Page. No, I'm, I still use a bookmark. I've got one that's um, a laminated, made in the nursery school by, oh. by the twins. And it's Does it not little... fall out and you drop uh, it around the house? No, I'm quite careful with it. I think I'm extra careful because I know it's made by the twins when they're about three. And it's like little fingerprints in robins, made into robins oh. and sort of splodges and things and laminated. May I, um, very sweet. offer you some advice on that now ahead on, of then. the leaving home situation? Oh, yeah. I feel like you should swap bookmarks because every time after they've gone <gasps> in September, oh, saying yes. it out loud, Trish, yes. they are going, yes. you will open that yes. book on that bookmark and you'll be in floods of tears for about half an oh. hour. It'll impede your day. Yeah. I would suggest yeah. you go and get a, a Waterstones one. <laughs> yes, I will. I think because you, you're right, though, we did always have bookmarks. You'd buy them for somebody's little birthday present, wouldn't you? But yeah. I'm not sure you would these not days. Not a thing anymore. Let's go on a mission and see if we can find some fun okay. bookmarks because life's just and so could, exciting. could everybody, yes, because I know mm. you've got nothing else to do, yes. team listening. Yes. Could everybody who's got their bookmarks from 1904 like mine pop picture of them on the facebook yeah. group for me yeah, i will uh, get her to send me my bookmark back. sharing well where have course, you been well you see i didn't i wasn't as clever as you and tie in with our book special um i've done booze alcohol doesn't go <laughs> doesn't go anywhere near what you're doing but do you remember sweetie drinks perno yeah. and black Teenage oh, drinks. Oh my don't god! Say that. It brings back and flashback behind a bus shelter. Oh, there we are. Yeah. Pink, <laughs> pink sick, probably pink yes. vomit. Oh yes. my god! Yes. And sudden comfort and lemonade. Those oh, were the two. Do you remember? Oh my mm. god! I don't know whether anybody drinks the the Perno and Black anymore. Do you remember? It's that weird aniseedy flavour. I love aniseed, but yeah. I love, uh, because of an ex- it must have been very cheap in Cornwall in yes. the late eighties. <laughs> Did you neck a lot? When of you it? have too much, you can't really even smell it ever again, oh, can you? God, um, yeah. No, it's just it is. I mean, the, the sort of stylish French drink it with a bit of water in it. But blackcurrant, 
Why would you put that um, in a drink? Anyway, yeah. Southern Comfort. I moved from Perno and Black onto Southern Comfort, another sweetie drink. And um, I've got a fascinating fact. Janice Joplin used to drink Southern Comfort on stage when she was Did performing. She? she used to have a bottle in her hand. And that's like a weird sort of whiskey liqueur. All the sweetie what, drinks. What would you have on stage? Say you were a rock <laughs> goddess from the 70s, like yes. Stevie Nicks. What yes. would you have on hand maybe, on stage? Maybe uh, a cup of cocoa or a beetroot yeah. juice, maybe. What do you think? One of those disgusting teas that you drink. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Something healthy, boring. So that brings us to the end of this week's postcards from midlife. I think the uh, bookmarks, we may have opened up a whole new porridge yeah. gate territory with Looking bookmarks. Looking forward to that. We I to can engage with bookmarks, bookmarks not porridge. Bookmarks from your childhood, bookmarks you use now, bookmarks kids have made, that kind Special of thing. Special ones your friends yes. have made for you. Hint, yes. hint. Yeah. I haven't I got one, you have one I? For your birthday. Don't you one? Oh, I'll stop you turning down the corners of all those books. Yeah, right. I could see that made you angsty. Yes, I didn't itchy. like that. No, didn't like that. Anyway, new episodes of Postcards from Midlife are available to listen to every Sunday on your podcast provider. And it really helps us if you can download your episodes so they count on our listener numbers. And also, if you could pop a little review and rate us on your app as well, that would be really helpful. And please tell all your friends about us. We want as many women as possible to join in our midlife conversation, which is what our private Facebook group is all about. That's where it's all happening, isn't it, Trish? Yeah. So if you're not a member, do come over and join join in our chat yes and you can use it to post any feedback on the topics we discuss as well as suggestions for other things you'd like to hear talked about or celebrities and experts you'd love to hear interviewed and you can of course email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or pop a little message on the old instagram goodbye bye planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.